Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these, is love. This is the word of God for the people of God. Love is patient and kind are often the first words of the scripture reading in an American wedding. In fact, in the time that I've been a United Methodist pastor these last 30 plus years, it is by far the most popular passage read at weddings. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 7. Probably 98, 99% of the weddings I have performed, we have read that passage. In fact, it's the one we recommend if a couple comes and doesn't have a favorite passage that they want to use at their wedding, we recommend this one. Now, some think that is trite because it's so often used. And others say, oh, that's a gross misrepresentation of what Paul was talking about. He wasn't talking about weddings. He wasn't talking about marriage. Why would you read that? If you know anything about the Bible, you would know that Paul wasn't talking about marital love, and they are right, he is not. But I would submit to you that even though most humans get together and the initial attraction is fueled by eros, in Greek, or erotic love, that for lifelong marriage, it takes agape, the word Paul uses here for love, a self-giving love kind of love is what we need to sustain lifelong marriages report after report continues to find that over half of the people who are marrying are divorcing i think one of the reasons is is we understand eros we don't understand agape quite so well let's look at this a little bit Because certainly Paul is not talking about marital love, but he is addressing mature Christian love. The word he uses is agape. You have probably heard it before if you've been in this church very long. But it's important that we learn about this kind of Christ-centered love. Because we have to learn to be patient and kind, to not be envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. We have to learn to give up our ego some, not just in marriage, but in lots of relationships. We have to learn how to do this. We have to have God, I think, come into us and transform our hearts and minds so that truly we can embody patience and kindness and this kind of love in all of our relationships. And I think perhaps Paul could hear his friends in Corinth saying, Oh, I'm not arrogant or rude. And so he goes on after that there in verse 5 and says this kind of love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Some would say he's gone from preaching to meddling. 
to use the old saying, he's getting deeper into our personal lives than we might be comfortable with suggesting that that's not appropriate. How many of us insist on our own way when we're involved in some kind of conflict? How many of us insist that we are the right party and the other must be wrong if we have a certain feeling or opinion about something? So often, that's the root of the conflict is we both want to be right and we insist on our own way and we have trouble being patient and kind and listening to another. I'll tell you how this plays out in marital disputes that come to the pastor's office. I find almost every time both people come wanting me to support their view of things. They want to be right. I don't have many coming asking, help me learn how to bear my partner's burden. Oh, pastor, I've come so that you can help me be more patient and kind in the face of this struggle we're a part of. It's the same in church fights, I think. That's the context really here in Corinthians. They're having a church fight. They're having a conflict. Paul's addressing that. But you know what happens in modern day churches. Someone disagrees with someone else in their Sunday school class or their church. Or they don't like a decision the board made. Or they don't like something the pastor says. And so they have to leave the church. They feel compelled to leave the church under the banner of integrity or right doctrine. It looks a lot like me. They are insisting on their only way as the only right way. I think there's room for growth within the Christian church around this concept of agape love and how we deal with one another, whether it's in the church or in our businesses or in our homes or in our marriages. Now, this is a different context. Paul has found out that the Corinthians are fighting about spiritual gifts And which ones are the most important? They want to know which one of them are doing the best. Do they have the right gift? He gives a rather lengthy answer that starts in chapter 12, goes all the way through 12, all the way through 13, and all the way to the end of 14. Now, we don't have time to cover all the details of what Paul says. He packs a lot in there. It's worth reading. But suffice it to say that Paul believes that God has created the body of Christ with diversity, which is essential to the fullness of our life in Christ. He goes on to assert that this agape love, of which he speaks of in the 13th chapter, is the key to this life in Christ. That if we're going to experience unity in the midst of diversity, this kind of love has to be at the center of who we are and how we interact with one another he uses a metaphor in chapter 12 of a physical body he talks about how we need all parts of the physical body and the same is true in the body of christ if you have your bibles open look in verse 12 of chapter 12 he writes these words for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with christ For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, 
Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And then he goes back to the metaphor and talks about feet and hands and eyes and ears. And then in verse 18, he says, But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Then he returns to the metaphor a little bit more. And then in verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And then in verse 31, he concludes that section by sort of mapping out the way forward. He says, strive for the greater gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And that leads us to chapter 13, and the more excellent way is the way of agape, or the way of love. And what Paul is saying is, within the body... We can't have these kind of divisions where some are included and some are excluded or some are deemed worthy and other are unworthy or some have these special gifts and others do not so they're not really part of the body. Paul says to these early Christians in Corinth, oh no, no, not in the body of Christ. We need all the parts. We need all the people. We need all the diversity that God has created if we're going to experience the fullness that God intends. We are connected members of the body of Christ just like the body is one body. And he says if you don't understand this, if you can't practice this kind of love, you are nothing. You are not helping. You're not contributing to the health of the body. Paul has some very strong words here in this 13th chapter when he's talking about love. This agape love is to be the force that shapes our behaviors and guides our actions. It must be the motivation even for our actions as members of the body of Christ. Working on the sermon this week got me to thinking of all the different times I've heard this passage. And it reminded me of a time when I was 19. I'd done one year of college at the University of Oklahoma. Then I'd come back to my hometown, Okmulgee, and the First United Methodist Church there, and they'd hired a new youth director. She was a young woman not much older than I was. They had given her a list of names of people she ought to contact to invite to be sponsors to help her with the youth group. I was on the list. So she convened the first youth meeting of the summer. I went. It was a Wednesday night. She chose this very passage, 1 Corinthians 13, for the lesson or the devotion that night. Imagine, if you will, sort of a concrete block building, linoleum floors, big carpet square in the middle, and about 15 or so youth, half a dozen adults sitting or lying on the carpet. And she begins to read this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, very slowly. And then after she's read through the entire chapter, she begins to ask the youth what this means in the way they live their lives. 
And when she's talking about the positive attributes, patience and kindness, lots of heads are nodding and, oh yeah, people are all in. But when she gets to the negative list and begins to talk about envy and boasting and arrogance and rudeness, people begin to squirm a little bit. Then she goes on with the list and about insisting on its own way and irritability and resentfulness and rejoicing wrongdoing and the room begins to get very quiet she shares how looking back on the last year she's realized she's fallen into some patterns of negative behavior where she's exhibiting some of those negative attributes and she asks, anybody else have that experience and one by one people begin to share when they have been one of those exhibiting, one of those negative characteristics, being less than Christ-like. And the room was very still as everybody was listening so intently with empathy, I would say, because all of us there realized every one of us had exhibited some of those negative attributes that Paul has on the list. Not proud of it, but willing to share that with the group. She talked a little bit more about our witness for Christ and suggested to everyone there that we pray to God for help in being shaped more into the mold of agape love. Now, Paul says we can only see dimly at this point in our lives. Someday we will see clearly, but now we can only see as in a mirror dimly. But he says we can see this. We can see that three things abide in that very last verse. Now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. And the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is agape. Let me remind all of us that as it's used here, agape is an active love that wills the good and does the good for another. As I was talking about the new covenant in Christ last week, I remind you this way of love is one that is willing to be involved in self-sacrifice, self-denial being willing to give up something we might really want on behalf of someone else's good or on behalf of the good of a larger group. It's a self-giving love for the good of someone else. Or in the case of Christ, a self-giving love on behalf of the whole world for the good of the whole world. It's that kind of love. One of our TV viewers from Springdale, Arkansas wrote me a letter this week. It was a very kind letter. He said, we watch every Sunday. He said, the more we watch, the more we are blessed. I thought, that's fantastic. That is our hope, that we're spreading joy and love and the worship of God to those who are unable to be with us or to be in any church home. But he was a generous man. He not only said very kind things about our church, but he sent me a book. And he said, I love this book. It's been meaningful in my life. If you don't 
have time to read the whole thing, read this one story first off, page 7. It was a story about wartime. He told me in the letter that he was a naval aviator in World War II and that some of his friends had died. Some of them had been captured and survived as prisoners of war. The story was about people who had been prisoners of war, particularly in the Korean conflict. It said that the military authorities began to notice something very strange at the end of the Korean War, that the death rate in the prisoners of war camps was higher than in any past conflict the United States had been involved in, and yet by every report from those who returned, they had been given better care physically than in any other conflict, that they had been given adequate food and adequate water and adequate shelter. And yet the death rate was higher. They weren't sure what was going on. They wanted to study this. They began to look more closely at these prisoners of war. They realized that not only was the death rate higher, but none of them had tried to escape And there was story after story of how the American troops had turned on each other while in the camps. And then a final thing they noticed, that those who survived and returned to safe shores, when they were given that opportunity to call a family member or a loved one, almost nobody made a single call. They wondered what had happened to these men What had the North Koreans done that they came back in such terrible shape? And after they studied it for a while, they called it marasmus, a lack of resistance. The soldiers called it give up itis. They found that the North Koreans had worked to deny men the emotional support that comes from interpersonal relationships. They began to hear stories of how they encouraged them from the very first day they were in prison to inform on their fellow soldiers, to tell them something about them, usually negative. They began to gather them in groups and insist that one by one they stand up and tell all the bad things they had ever done. And not only that, they had them list the good things that they knew they could have done, but they failed to do. Day after day, this kind of misguided, sort of deformed group therapy. They began to work on the loyalty they had to each other and to their country and tried to dismantle that. They even said that the North Koreans sorted the mail in a peculiar way, that as the mail came in, if it were a positive or an encouraging letter, they never gave it to the soldiers. But if it was a negative letter, they always delivered it. If it was from a spouse saying, I can't go on like this, I'm moving or I'm going to remarry, they would deliver the letter. If it said, oh, your father, your mother, or someone close to you has died, they would deliver the letter. They said they even delivered some past due bill notices that somehow were sent over there. If it were negative, they delivered the mail. Let me read you a couple of lines from the conclusion of the report. They wrote this, The effects were devastating. The soldiers had nothing to live for and lost basic belief in themselves and their loved ones, not to mention God and country. Each of these soldiers had been 
isolated and manipulated in such a negative way as to no longer care for others. In fact, they did not even care about themselves. They had been robbed of all sense of unity and community, of empathy and sympathy. The results are indeed devastating when we have to live in such circumstances. Paul sees in this church at Corinth this same kind of dynamic, I think, in the people as they quarrel and fight and disengage and attack one another. They are losing the precious gift of unity and community that we experience in the body of Christ at its best when agape love is at the center. What is most important for us as we endeavor to live as mature Christians? What is at the center of that? What is most important for us in our life together as a church community? What is most important in your life as a disciple of Christ? Paul says it's this, faith, hope, and love. These three, and the greatest of these is love. Amen, and thanks be to God.